Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Oxford's global professor of history, Peter Frankopan, who a couple of years ago published The Silk Roads, which was a whole global history. And he's now published a sort of companion volume called The New Silk Roads. Now, Peter, apart from the fact that your first book sold, you know, gazillions of copies, which obviously provides a very good reason for providing a follow-up. There must have been other reasons you wanted to provide a follow-up to that book. What? I think it's the other way around. I think I think my instinct was having Silk Rose done so well. I sort of constantly still feel that my job is to go and sit, sit, in, sit in the corner somewhere and let somebody else sing the songs. But I think, that there were, you know, it's an amazing thing being a historian where suddenly a book catches a wave and, and I was very lucky when Silk Roads came out first that it was very generously reviewed but then but then people were, are really engaged I think at the moment in the world of today of trying to work out what's happening in this time of transition where there are so many different strands with, with Brexit and Trump the rise of China what's going on with Russia Iran and so on and so I, I had been perfectly happy minding my own business I've got to you know try to work on a big future project. Then I was speaking to my editor about bringing the Silk Roads up to date and having a, a new last chapter. And so the original plan had been to write sort of another 10, 10 pages that, that, that you could we stick on the end that explained what's happened in the last three or four years. And the problem with that, I suppose, was on the first hand, I didn't feel it was quite right that people who had already bought a copy of the Silk Roads would have to buy another one to, to just find out another two or three thousand words but there's also quite a lot that's been going on in the last well five ten fifteen twenty years that writing something longer and an extended essay I thought was worthwhile doing so in fact it, it grew it grew into a, a into a sort of standalone project slightly by chance and and sometimes things that happen by chance are, are no bad thing because they force you to concentrate the mind and they they're, they're, it gives you a lot of freedom actually so it's it, the, this book is really about what's what's happened in the last three or four years since Silk Roads came out because there's a lot that's been happening and we sometimes don't focus on that because we're, we're here in Britain anyway Brexit dominates the news well, that seems um, to be one of the arguments you make is that we we sort of miss a trick because we're so focused on the US and the UK's relationship with Europe that you say something completely different and much more important is going on to the east. Well, I think that that's probably a function of, of you know, people want to understand themselves first. That's totally fine and, and totally reasonable. I think it's partly to do with how we look at history as well and how we look at the past, that we, we are convinced that what matters is the West and therefore what the angst, the angst that we're living through, that that, that, that needs to, to demand the greatest level of focus and concentration. But, I mean, in terms of what I see in the world today as being important is 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 there going to be military confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia and if so what is the likely fallout regionally and also globally and you know here in Britain we are, we have a important commercial relationships and, and on oil and energy dependencies on states like these last year in in there was there was military confrontation between India and China at the Duklam plateau where as luck would have it on this particular occasion Indian and Chinese troops were both told by their commanding officers to put down their guns and to punch each other but there's a there's an obvious flash it's a qualified point. success yeah well qualified I mean I think in, in this age of global nuclear destruction I think it is a qualified success that finding ways to be able to not engage militarily is hugely important and in fact the, the chief of the chief of the Indian general staff after that incident said India needs to be ready in 2018 to be able to fight two and a half wars at the same time which means engaging with China engaging with Pakistan and putting down civil unrest if it happened in India so that that's the kind of scale of 
the fragility points, and then there's South China Sea that people you know can name check and know a bit about, and then interference by Russia in elections, attempted assassinations, and so on and so forth. That in in that grand scheme of what is going on in this reconfiguration of the world, to me that all looks more significant and more worth following than even if we're going to have you know lorry queues outside Dover which I suspect we will. But for 99% of the world's population, that doesn't matter, the decisions we make here. And I think what, what, what we do well in Britain is we're pretty good at, at trying to look at the world around us because we have a long legacy and a long history in doing so. But for, funnily enough, in the process of globalisation in the last, or hyper-globalisation of the last four or five decades, we have, we have started to look much more closely inwards rather than outwards. So I think 100 years ago, sitting here in London in Westminster, politicians, journalists, scholars had a much wider engagement with the world, actually, than we do today. Well, I mean, that does seem to be one of the sort of binaries that's in your book, is the sort of sense that, you know, the West, by which I guess we're talking about sort of Western Europe, Britain in particular, and the US, are going through a period of introspection, fragmentation, unilateralism, different nationalisms. But the Silk Roads, the heart of the world, as you describe it quite frequently, is actually the, the opposite's happening, that we're seeing much more cooperation. Is that a sort of... Yes, although that, well, as to qualify that, I mean, the, the rivalries locally, are, they are intense, they're not, they're not simple. We're, we're here in, in middle of November talking. Yesterday there was a meeting between the Prime Ministers of Russia and China where high-level discussions about currency swaps, about trying to find a way where both countries can move away from dependency on the US dollar, how there can be interbanks, uh, you know, uh, currency exchanges, and ability to invest for both countries in each other's economies. That, that can easily hide the complications of of. of of geopolitical, economic, military rivalries between two very powerful nations. So I think it's, it sometimes can be easy to, to fall for the sort of hot air of the gossip of, uh, and the slogans of, of new connections being made. But I think there's no question that across Asia there is a commitment to try to find ways to co- work together. And what the single most unifying factor of that is, is that there's no place for the West. And within that story, I think, of the world that's rebuilding, that's partly to do with the transfer of global GDP to, to, to the states above all of Asia, India, China particularly, but also Southeast Asia and so on and so forth. Um, but I think also wrapped up in with, with that is, is the sense that the West is seen in these parts of the world, which is, after all, four and a half billion people, it's sort of 65% of the world's populations live along the world, the, the new Silk Roads, or the Silk Roads, that the West is seen as being volatile, disruptive, and, uh, and uh, unwilling to cooperate. And I think when we see Brexit and, and Trump, not, not just his Twitter feed, but Trump uh, pulling out of Paris Climate Accords, you know, tearing up NAFTA, coming out of the deep Trans-Pacific Partnership, that there is a sort of logic in all of that. So one of the jobs as a, as a historian or as a commentator, I guess, is to try to work out what is the impulse that is forcing us in the West, in Western Europe and all of Europe and the US to be trying to disengage from each other and to try to, to limit the collaborations or to look for new futures. And those new futures, we're, we're all fishing around to try to work out what those might be. But you're absolutely right. Those, those are different questions regionally in the East where people are trying to work out how to get on better with their neighbours. Is there also a sense, I mean, obviously the original Silk Roads, you know, which created sort of the world we, we've had until quite recently, were very much sort of aligned west-east. And it seems to me that in the 
you mean East, East West? You mean sorry, East, East West, West? You know, yeah. was a sort of East West conduit. Yeah, and that yet, yet as you describe in your book, things like the TAPI pipeline, the sort of Northwest Transport Corridor, that you know a lot of what's now is being established is a sort of north south thing from you know the central asia down into india and from china right down into southeast mm. asia i mean is there a is the west being sort of cut out in some sense that i think i think that uh, you know it's a it's a fairly basic point but you know the world exists on supply and demand of resources where those are located and who wants them and is able to pay for them and in fact, I, you're right, exactly right. When we think about these Silk Roads, we always think east-west. But there's a commercial exchange that goes on on that process. And so things do go back in the other direction. So, for example, in the 1600s, when, when Europe starts to become very wealthy, largely through its connections into the Americas and the, the natural resources, the gold and the silver that are extracted and from trade in the world, a lot of that money is recycled through Europe, as a, which becomes a financial centre, and and really invigorates markets all over Asia. So, for example, in India, the Taj Mahal is, is built on these monuments, these big cities and palaces are built because local rulers suddenly have much more money at their disposal because of that globalised movement of bullion. And in, in today's world, I suppose where one starts is obviously with hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, which may, you know, I hope doesn't have a as, as strong a next 200 years as the last 200 but 70% of the world's hydrocarbon fossil fuels are, are east of Istanbul, in the Caspian, the Middle East, and Russia, Central Asia. In the new world of clean technologies, we're going to need batteries and so on, where we're going to need, apart from the cobalt from West Africa, all of the rare earths that we need for our laptops, our new high-tech gadgets. All 90% of that is from China, and the rest is from either Russia or Mongolia. Very small deposits elsewhere. And so if you start with where, where are resources and who wants them, you know, 65% of the world's wheat grown east of Istanbul, 85% of the world's rice, then as a population in, in Asia becomes richer and more numerous, then then the West becomes less relevant because we have less to offer. We don't have minerals here that other people want. We don't have things well, that we can we're fracking grow. away up in the north of England. Well, you know, there's a lot And, and that, that's not a, that, you know, that there is, we have to work out how to mar- marshal what we've got, but we don't, we, we have clever people and we have a good education system, we have good justice systems and things that can be replicated, but we don't definitively have products that necessarily people want or that, or that we, we can only manufacture or make or have here. And I think that, that when one starts with that sort of rather bald view about what is it that people need to survive and what do they want to be able to, to show themselves off, then, then that wealth starts with, with, with resources and control of resources and control over networks and control over infrastructure and control over the, over, over the levers and the muscles that allow economic growth to happen. And in the last decade, there's not a single one of the world's far, 10 fastest growing economies in the Western Hemisphere. They're all based either in Africa or in, or in Asia. And I think that when you think about what that means, it's not just a result of the global financial crisis. It's about, it's about the acceleration of, of economic activities in states that have been re- relatively successful in, in managing to, to manage industrial growth and, uh, and to be able to convince the populations that their tomorrow looks better than their today. And I think here in Europe... It's hard to find people, whatever side of you are of the Brexit argument, whatever side you are of the political spectrum, to believe that your children or grandchildren will have a better and easier life than, than we do. And that, 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 that sets in motion a series of very different kind of discussions to have in the political forum and as investors as well. If you, if you think that your children will have a happier and better life, then it's worth carrying on. It's worth investing in education. It's worth ploughing on. It's worth 
uh, looking for stability. When you when you think things are going to go wrong, then well, maybe there are reasons to jettison and pull out of international agreements and break down unions and try and think there's a different way in which we can bring back the, the glory of the past. Yeah, do you th- I mean the way you describe it? You know, you're very focused on resources and industry and geography. And I mean, do you think that there's been sort of, if you like, too much utopian idea that that prosperity is going to become digitized and dematerialized and geography is going to be much less important it's a very good question i i don't know is the answer i mean there are all sorts of ways in which digitization is a, a hugely important tool for the spread of democratization in terms of choices of what music you listen to or, or how we participate in, in in formal public debate or even in you know on twitter and so on social media you know it allows people to have a voice and i think these things are are difficult to know how to regulate in terms of freedoms of speech what's acceptable how do people behave in their in their online personas and so on and i think in 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 the west we we allow that those debates to be held in in either privately owned companies or in 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 businesses right whereas in places like turkey russia you know the middle east iran china and so on people have to work much more closely with the state because the state is more, much more powerful and more vigilant and more aggressive in the way it treats its citizens. So last week there was an advert of, on the, of, of the new announcement on the bullet trains in China which say that if you litter or if you are in any way antisocial, you will have your credit score downgraded. It's remarkable, wasn't it? And, and you know, that, that's a way in which the state believes that it, it is acting in the interests of its citizens. The state in China, which at the moment has a, a, maybe a million or maybe more Uyghurs in re-education centres, believes that it's taking steps for the good of the people. And here we, I think, are not immune for these discussions, where we hear the will of the people as a, as a slogan on a regular basis in, in connection with things like Brexit and presumably with other things too in the future, that, that the majority should have its way, regardless whether it's a slender majority or otherwise, and the state should be obliged to follow what that, that majority wants. And I think that, that, becomes, that becomes a difficult and uncomfortable discussion we have to have in the West about what it is the relationship between citizens and consumers and, and the state. Yeah, I, do. I, mean, I think Robert Kagan wrote in, was it The Return of History and the End of Dreams, he said, kind of contra Fukuyama, you know, countries like China and Russia are not just places that happen to be autocracies on the way to being democracies. They're active believers in autocracy. Do you think that's a kind of firm paradigm that'll stick? I w- sometimes when I go to sleep at night, I wish I was a political scientist and I could detect these patterns and these models and sort of speak towards the idea that there is a sort of framework that works and that is identifiable. You know, I think that we are, you know, I suppose, again, boiling it down. You know, the, the primary thing I think about we human beings is that we're animals. We're social animals, but, you know, we have a tendency to want to create hierarchies and we have a tendency to try to work out that that can sometimes be a, be a very bad idea. And so the, the role partly of a state is to, is to try to create, uh, to equalise in terms of opportunities, in terms of social mobility and to try to create meritocracies. And uh, ironically, democracies tend to not always be particularly good at that process for whatever all sorts of different kinds of reasons and lots of different examples you might try to give but i think that the primary requisite that 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 a normal citizen would want from the state is to try and find a system of stability and there i think my my problem and it's not we're not talking about about brexit but i think that the the challenge of something like brexit isn't just about the taking back of control or supposed taking back of control it's that in a global situation that's changing extremely fast right now 
where there are so many different fragility points that we might get through all effortlessly and so on, it's a particularly dangerous moment to be trying to change the way we do business, to try and change the allies we have, and to try to look for new new friends. And, you know, it's difficult in this global world where there are autocracies on the one hand, democracies on the other, that we are joined by the hip to, to Saudi Arabia, whether we like it or not. We're joined to the hip to China and its global supply chains, whether we like it or not. We're joined to the hip to, to Russia and its energy resources, whether we like it or not. And I think that we can, we can be over-idealistic and we, and we over-promise in what we think we can actually do rather than being pragmatic, which is, I think, sometimes be more sensible. Now, you quote a very striking line from, I think, the German foreign minister, Sigmar Gabriel. He says... The only country in the world with any sort of genuinely global geostrategic concept is China. Do you think that's true? Well, I think we don't know what we're doing in the UK in three three or four months' time at the moment. I mean, what's interesting is that, and I I, I have a line also about what's happened since the Chinese have, have articulated their Belt and Road Initiative, their sort of plans to invest and so on and so forth, that in that time... Roughly, it was about the same time that George Osborne announced the Northern Powerhouse. And so far, the Northern Powerhouse's achievement has been the reopening of the south face of Leeds train station. And if you look at the Northern Powerhouse website... Baby the, the, mo- the most recent news is that there are, there are a few new posters that have been put up at Manchester Airport to showcase the Northern Powerhouse. And in the same period of time, China's invested, and we, we argue a bit about it amongst ourselves, but, but certainly hundreds of billions of dollars... Something as many as 900 billion committed or earmarked for investment. Some of these projects haven't gone particularly well. There's debt diplomacy that a lot of states have high dependency on on, on loans that they're likely, likely to default on. But I think that, it, that, that, that there's no question that we in Europe and the West have got no strategic plan. We've got no strategic plan to work out how to collaborate on climate change, how to work through what we should do about migration, whether it's so-called economic migration or refugees. We've got very little idea about what Europe will look like post-Britain's exit. There's rising anti-EU sentiment in almost every country in, in the EU. At the moment, there's discussion about Italy refusing to work to EU set budgets, Poland and Hungary and uh, you know all, uh, being sanctioned officially by the EU too. I think that, that we have a a very difficult hand of card to play here because we don't know what tomorrow will bring and we're not able to plan for the future. So there are, there are a few states that do quite well. You know, Norway decided to put cash into a sovereign wealth fund about 20 years ago that's now valued at about a trillion dollars each time a barrel of oil was sold from its assets. And now now Norway has the equivalent of nearly $200,000 per man, woman and child to work out what to do in the future. And what all of us know from our personal lives, if you've got cash in the bank, you can afford to make plans when you're spending through a deficit and trying to keep up with costs, then it's much, much harder. And in that process, the, the, the choice to be, to, make, to, be, to be unstable and to decouple may be the right one in the long run, but it, obviously choosing the moment is, is one of, 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 of great significance. And this Belt and Road is, you know, this great Chinese sort of, well, either cooperation or expansionist project that you describe is kind of central to the book and the, your view of the world. How do you interpret it? Because it seems to me, you know, reading your description of it, quite often it's as if China's saying to a number of poorer countries, we'll lend you a hell of a lot of money that you can spend on buying stuff from us, essentially, and in exchange we'll have your sort of political docility as well. I mean, is it, is it a, they keep describing it as a win-win? Yeah partnership but it seems quite a lot of the time it's a sort of win for china and a 
rather qualified win for the countries that it's I think I think that's right and in some cases it's been a qualified it's been an unqualified loss so there's a port in in the south of Sri Lanka which defaulted almost immediately and China rather than restructuring the debt or working out how to spread the risk or or so on taken a 99 year control over that port which has its obvious sensitivity for shipment of Chinese goods etc etc and that looks to to all intents and purposes like neo-colonialism so a lot will depend in the future about how China learns from those kinds of I was going to say mistakes, it may not be a mistake, learns from these kinds of examples and learns from how the world reacts to those kinds of examples. The Sri Lanka case has spooked a lot of countries across Central and Southeast Asia that, 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 who question whether this win-win rhetoric is actually real. But having said that, there's no question that investing in infrastructure is 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 a necessity for countries with large-scale populations. In Pakistan, a population of 200 million people needs to have energy supplies that are stable, that, that the lights don't go off or the power doesn't cut out for six hours at a time when you can't well, you can cook, but you can cook using wood, and that's not great for your health and for the environment. Uh, you can't do homework with the lights off and so on. So that infrastructure needs to be built. And the Asian Development Bank, which is a sort of multilateral institution, uh, estimates that, that the countries of Asia requires $1.7 trillion a year in investment. And so China's hundreds of billions is, a, is a, not quite a drop in the ocean, but you know there's plenty of space for other people to get involved. So part of, I think, the, the issue is that we can criticise China and the debt traps and the debt diplomacy, and those are real and profoundly important to assess how they work, although a lot of projects along the Belt and Road are working so, so apparently fairly well and to plan. But I think it's, it's if China doesn't do it, then where's everybody else? And, you know, Paul Collier, a colleague of mine at Oxford University, a book he wrote a couple of years ago, you know, he looking at Africa and, and migration, that for what every $1 we spend in the developing world on infrastructure, we spend $135 here in the West. So when we cut our aid, aid budgets like we do here, or where Trump has cut $2 billion from US development aid into places like Pakistan, then that, that there is a gap that opens up for for new opportunities, which may be imperialistic, they may be militaristic, they may be commercially sensible or otherwise, but there is a vacuum. And I think it, I think the Chinese development story is one which senses very strongly that there is a recoil of the West from engaging with other parts of the world. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm more than agnostic, I think, about the net benefits of Belt and Road. And, and But the problem is, is it, it's, it's easy to package this as a sort of master plan, whereas, in fact, there are so many different elements to it that... Clearly, some of them are going to work much better than others. And the ones that work well, if they benefit the local populations, if they build energy plants, if they build sanitation roads and so on, then that can be highly beneficial. But clearly, the, the things that go wrong do huge amounts of damage locally. They, destroy, they distress governments in terms of their economies. And they don't reflect well on, on what China's trying to do as a global superpower. But this is quite still quite early days of China engaging with the world. China typically has has not made a particularly strong impression in the last 2,000 years of, of being interested in looking beyond its own frontiers. And so, you know, I think one has to watch watch this space to see see what kind of animal Belt and Road and what kind of animal China is, is actually underneath the skin. And, and, and it's constantly changing. There are also these extraordinary kind of regional tangles that particularly, you know, there's animosity, say, between Qatar and Saudi or between Saudi and Turkey that you see, I suppose, Russia and America all sort of trying to play both sides. I mean, do you think that's that will settle out? And 
they'll eff- effectively people will get their own, their uh, own I team. Think, or... I think that what's, what's interesting is I, I spend a, a, a lot of time, well, it's a lot of time, I spend a lot of time, lots of, I, I, I pay close attention to the sort of shuttle diplomacy that comes out of Moscow, where Lavrov is the, the foreign minister, highly intelligent, articulate and so on, is constantly on the move, visiting all these different states and bringing them, bringing their leaders and their foreign ministers and so on up to Moscow. Very careful cultivation that Russia, which is economically quite weak, uh, has important control of energy supplies that has an impact, but has a very strong cultural imprint, a very strong military capability still. But I think that the the Russian story in this, uh, which articulated also by China and also by Iran and others, is that we in the, the West is switched is asleep at the wheel. You know, we switch the lights off. We're not paying any particular attention, and that these are local disputes that need to be resolved by local actors. You know, why would Washington be involved in trying to broker a peace in Syria on the other side of the world? You know, this isn't something that can be solved that way. So, wouldn't it be better, as in fact is the case, that peace talks take place or resolution talks between Putin, Erdogan, and Rouhani? And in fact, in some cases, the the U.S. and Western Western observers aren't, 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 don't play a role at all in the discussions. In fact, a whole round of, of, of negotiations, peace negotiations taking place in Kazakhstan between these three powers. And the West is sort of out of the picture. And I think one of the challenges we have here is to work out, well, should we be involved in trying to bring peace? How should we try to do that? What kind of moral authority do we have? And how good is our track record? Because we, we look like we're quite good at knocking things down, like Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi or whatever, we look less good at being able to rebuild things. And there, I think, is, is part of China's strength of their story, is what the Chinese government keeps saying, is we're here to win-win. And it's not clear what our message is here at all. I mean, it's, and it's, it's when we say, well, we're not really that interested because we, we really have to spend time thinking about whether we should be able to buy and sell fruit from northern France to Kent or vice versa then we, we sort of self-select to be out of, out of the picture. In fact, Britain in particular, with a highly talented foreign office, uh, as good local connections as, as any other uh, state in the world, and, you know, and a real Anglophilia in large parts of the world because of our sense of justice and fair play and a sense of Monty Python, sense of humour, you know, we, we have a very good reputation. And, and it's a shame that in, the, in that space where we could be playing small but very important roles of helping calibrate these big interests, you know, we just don't have the capacity or resource to do that effectively. So speaking of sense of humour, we should make clear that this book isn't all, you know, hardcore geopolitical analysis, but there's great comic relief in the form of Turkmenistan, which you repeatedly return to as this place of kind of these Ruritanian world record attempts and sort of airports in the shape of falcons and so on. I mean, how is Turkmenistan quite as batty as it is? There are lots of different answers. I spent some time in Ashgabat this summer in 46 degree heat and so on. You know, the, the, that, that space that's our Turkmenistan to the eastern side of the Caspian Sea has the fourth largest gas reserves in the world. Despite that, it's an economic basket case where the, the availability of food, the currency prices, the one I, I took, my, I was there with my, my, my daughters came with me for. To, to Central Asia and you know a packet of Smarties costs 80 quid at the official exchange rates and you it's quite hard to work out how the, how this happens it's it's partly because the Turkmen people are insulated regionally because they are they see themselves as being different a sort of a tribal nomadic society that has evolved into something different it's partly because like everybody with with two, with lots of 
gas and whatever, they, they get tapped up by people who have no scruples at all to try to get the gas off them. It's partly that they're stopped from having pipelines across the Caspian to export their gas because the Russians don't really want that to happen. And it's partly because the throwbacks of coming out of communism, or the, the challenges of coming out of a full communist authoritarian state, aren't straightforward. So, so, so Niazov, who was the first president after independence, ruled it not just like it was his fiefdom, he ruled it like it was North Korea. So freedoms of the press, expression, you know, more or less zero. And the current president, who has a real fetish for world, Guinness Book of World Records challenges, I mean, the, the first, so there was a new port that opened in the Caspian in, the, in May, and it is, the, because of the, the geography, it's, it's, the facilities is below sea level. But, you know, engineering can sort this out. The first person who gave the speech was the re- representative of the Guinness Book of Records to say, yes, this was indeed the, I think it was at the lowest or the biggest or the most recent built below sea level and so on. And they've lost the title of the tallest flagpole in the world to Tajikistan. And then the Tajiks only held that for about a year before it's been claimed by, I think, I think I can't remember if it's Abu Dhabi or Dubai. But I think the, the Turkmen, they, they, they feel that they want to survive in a world, well, or the, the, the government, I think, want to stay in a world where they're not Iran, where they're not Russia, where they're not, they want to define this as being not anything else apart from Turkmen. So it used to be the last president insisted that all children had a copy of a text called the Ruhrama, which explained how the Turkmen people had been descendants of Noah and more, you know, sort of semi-outer space type story that blended every element from everything you could find. And I think, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's, I don't want, and I'm not trying to laugh at the Turkmen. On the contrary, in fact, right now, with both Taliban and ISIS operating... Yes, so if we have any Turkmen listeners, I should apologise for the tone with which I can introduce I promise you won't have any Turkmen listeners to the Spectator. <laughs> I, I know the Spectator podcast gets everywhere, but I think not, not to Turkmenistan, where my VPN, which can get past most things, couldn't get past the Tur- Turkmen censor. I think that, that the, these states are highly fragile, and, and if, if authoritarianism there gives way, as generally authoritarianism tends to, We'd probably it's not in our interest if if Taliban forces that have has a big border with Afghanistan or ISIS, which there have been for like all the Central Asian republics, quite high levels of recruitment by ISIS in its sort of ill-fated attempts to recreate the world. That that Turkmenistan is something that that is is a, it's a very important part of the world to pay attention to, and that notwithstanding the human rights, the press freedoms, the all the, all the rest of it, but but it it, it has a lot of things that people, a lot of gas particularly, that other people want, and making sure who's, that, that that gets worked into a, an international system is probably quite a good idea for us all. Yeah. Well, they've got a good airport. I mean, as you describe it, there's the airport capacity is something like, you know... 26 million. 26 million, yeah. and the current 120,000 a year actually fly. I think that's right. Amazing, duty-free, no queues anywhere. But, you know, I think that these, these, these are these, these signature and big statement buildings. I mean, in Ashgabat, they have the biggest indoor Ferris wheel in the world that was closed when I, when I was there. I don't know why. But, you know, it's part of a world that we really don't understand. And whether pipelines get built from Turkmenistan gas fields towards, towards China, into Pakistan and India, you know, these have the, the, the capacity to transform the lives of not just the global poor, but population measuring into their billions. And those those energy demands are not. It's not a Turkmen issue. It's about Turkmen gas fields and its connectivities to populations that are, that want it, need it, and are able to pay for it. And the, the resort reserves there, they play a role in fixing what what it costs to download the Spectator podcast. You know, the energy prices are are set by working out who's got what, where is it, and it's part of it's part of exploitable or unexploitable 
field. So, I mean, under the Caspian, on, on its own, has five Caspian states around it, Russia, Iran, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and Turkmenistan. There's more oil than under the entire North American continental shelf. So, you know, these resources are, are immense. And if you are sitting on top of those resources, then you, can, you, you have different set of choices to if you're not. Now, if the world is remade you know, in the way you're describing, there'll be, one assumes, a sort of, you know, an ideological effect, a, a, a sort of, I mean, you know, one of the arguments has been made that sort of American imperialism, in a sense, created the sort of backlash of, you know, radical Islam and Al-Qaeda and so forth. Do you think there is going to be a similar sort of formation that will respond to, say, Chinese hegemony or this new Silk Roads joining up? I mean, obviously they're, they're banging up Uyghurs in a very aggressive way. Uh, well, I, I mean, I think at first to, to correct it, I mean, I think that there, there is a lot of there, a lot of currency to the idea that all these faults are all Americas, that, that, that the fact that there are bearded fundamentalists, it's all because the Americans have done something wrong. In fact, the Americans have done lots of things that are right and have, and have tried, you know, through no, no expense spared to try to rebuild states and to do, you know, do so at huge costs, both financially and in terms of servicemen and women who have been extremely brave, given either given their lives or wounded or, or just served. The, the, the. So, I, I, you know, I think that it's easy to take away agency from, from people locally who make decisions. I don't think it's the fault of, of the West. But I think that it's, it's striking to me, I think, two things. First, that Everywhere east of Istanbul. So, as I say, not not quite the fault of the West, but in the sense that you know, at least Al Qaeda was specifically formed as a project against you know the presence of Western. Yeah, well, we we we, I think in the West we're good at shooting first and asking questions second, and Brexit is part of that story too. You know, we didn't we didn't think about what the complications would be of getting out. You know, like I said, I'm not here to. To, to take a take, take a view, I know many spectators would would probably be very adamant in their views about Brexit. Maybe it's worth it in the long run, but for sure, there's no question that, that a lot of these issues that we're trying to work through now in and second half, end of 2018, we didn't anticipate or hadn't prepared for. I think that's entirely fair to say, and I think we're quite good at making decisions and then trying to do the working out afterwards. And when I was at school, I was taught the other way around: show the working, and then get to the right conclusion. So I think that that. Things like Al-Qaeda, the collapse of Iraq, problems in, in Libya, breakdown of Syria and so on. There are all sorts of things that, that we, can, we can beat ourselves up about that we should have done differently. But you know, these are fundamentally also reflection of, of conditions on the ground. And, and so you know, I think that that's an important corrective. But the first thing I was going to say was that from Istanbul, from Turkey, the whole way east... I think the two most striking points and observations are, uh, first, these are countries which are not free and they're becoming less free. So Turkey's building, basically doubling the number of prisons that it has in the next five years, uh, clamped down on civil servants, teachers, professors, drummed out of their jobs. And that, that, that growth of, of, of illiberty, of, of, of attacks on freedoms, is intensifying rather than going the other direction. So this is a new world that's growing, but it's not a free one. But second, I suppose what's equally striking is that we in the West don't have a single friend in the uh, uh, in this new world. You know, we don't like Erdogan, we don't like the Saudis and the way they do business. We, you know, Iraq and Syria, they are what they are. We don't like Assad, don't like Putin, we don't like Rouhani, we don't like Imran Khan, who's talking all the time now about making Pakistan. He, literally, every speech he's giving at the moment, well, not literally, almost every speech he's giving at the moment, is about transforming Pakistan into a version of the seventh century of Medina, where this is the ideal welfare state and so on, all the things that Imran Khan is saying. And then there's China with all of its neo-imperialism and so on. So there's not a single location 
in Asia. Maybe India is the biggest democracy, but you know, India has very close relationships with Iran, has very close relationships with Moscow. It buys almost all of its weapons, or a big, big, big chunk of its weapons, from from the Russians. Uh, complicated relationship with China, but we don't have a we don't have a we don't have a natural space there. We don't have a natural way of working out who to talk to, and so we don't like anybody there. We sort of look down our noses at them. We think they should become more like us. And we sort of, and, we, and I think we, we rather patronise the fact that these countries that are on the move uh, are making lots of mistakes. And we insulate the fact that, that uh, uh, what we've done wrong in our own backyard over the course of the last two or three hundred years. So I think this, this new world is definitely emerging. And as a, as a very boring and humble academic, you know, part of the issue is to start with education and, and how we start to teach what we teach young children in schools and at, at universities about about the wider world, and that it seems to me that that, that age where we, we we talk a lot about Henry VIII or about the First and Second World Wars are important, but maybe it's time to be widening those horizons. You know, keep keep on teaching children about our own backyard. It's important to, we do that, but I, I think it's incomprehensible to me that uh, uh, somebody can leave school at eighteen without knowing anything about China or the Middle East or South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa or North Africa or Mexico or whatever. So that that Western mantra that we are assumption that everything flows from the West and that our way of doing things is the right way, you know, I think needs to be, we need to be a bit more modest about that. Peter Frankman, thank you very much. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.